Good evening. I did say last night that really nobody had a clue what was really going on. We were told the Sue Gray report was coming. Then we were told it wasn't. Then we were told it would happen today. Perhaps a statement in the House of Commons. There is no report yet from Sue Gray. We know the Metropolitan Police are pursuing their inquiries, which depressingly, we're told, could last for several months. The debate in Westminster is should Boris Johnson stay on as leader of the Conservative Party. But I think the debate in the country is one about Boris Johnson himself. Is he believable? Is he a man of integrity? Is he somebody that tells the truth? Can we actually trust him? And something that happened today in the Foreign Affairs Committee, I think, casts a little bit more doubt on Boris Johnson's relationship with the truth. Do you remember back in the middle of August last year, the catastrophic events following President Biden's decision to unilaterally withdraw from Afghanistan and Operation Pitting was put into place for us to get people out of Afghanistan that had helped us and served us over the previous 20 years. In the middle of all of this, somehow a very large number of cats and dogs managed to get a flight out of Afghanistan. Now, Operation Ark uh, for the Nowzad charity was paid for by private donations, but the military were used to ease its passage and airspace was given. And there was huge speculation at the time as to whether the Prime Minister had been involved in this, or perhaps, more honestly, whether the Prime Minister's wife had been involved in this. Well, today, in the Foreign Affairs Committee, an email was given, and it came from the office of Lord Zach Goldsmith. And it's dated August the 25th, and it says very clearly, the PM has just authorised their staff and animals to be evacuated. It really couldn't be clearer than that. And further down in the email, it said, you know, the PM has said anything that needs to be done will be done. But that directly contradicts what the Prime Minister said when he was asked a question on this on the 7th of December. Let's see what his answer was to did you directly intervene and allow the safe passage of those cats and dogs. Did you intervene that way? No, that's complete nonsense. But what I can tell you is that I think that the operation of pitting to, to, to airlift 15,000 uh, people out of Kabul uh, in the way that we did over the, the summer was one of the outstanding military achievements uh, of, the, uh, of the last 50 years or more. Well, I struggle to find that believable. Uh, but in response to what was released today to the Foreign Affairs Committee, number 10 tonight has responded by saying the Prime Minister had no role in authorising individual evacuations from Afghanistan during Operation Pitting, including Nowzad staff, that's the charity, and animals. At no point did the Prime Minister instruct staff to take any particular course of action on Nowzad. So you can make your own minds up. You know, either Lord Zach Goldsmith's office, who wrote this absolutely in the heat of the moment on the 25th of August, either they weren't telling the truth or subsequently the Prime Minister wasn't telling the truth. But this is the problem. Again and again and again, the PM's relationship with the truth casts into doubt whether he is actually a man of integrity. I'm asking you, what do you think? Is the PM a man of integrity? Answers, please. Email farage at gbnews.uk. 
Now, let's try and find out whether we know any more about Sue Gray's report and what is happening in Westminster tonight. And joining me is GB News' political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Well, Darren, I did say last night that I just felt nobody had a really had clue what was going on. Are we any clearer this evening as to what's happening with Sue Gray's report? Uh, no, in many ways we're not, uh, Nigel, to be perfectly honest. Uh, there was much speculation it was going to come uh, today, not least of all because we know the report itself has been concluded. And we think that the holdup and delay involves, surprise, surprise, lawyers, that lawyers are going through uh, this report, uh, not least of all because uh, the police investigation is now involved. And as Downing Street put it today, they don't want uh, them to kind of rub up against each other or cut across each other. So the Met is involved at that stage. And it is likely because this report is seemingly going to name names that maybe the HR department in Downing Street or the Cabinet Office is involved as well, uh, considering there could be consequences for some of the people named in that report. Yeah. Uh, now, we know the timetable of what will happen in that this report will be published. It, it seems to be that essentially it will be published in full, Downing Street insisting that was kind of going to be the case uh, today, uh, and that the Prime Minister, having released it, will then go to the Commons to answer questions. So essentially, it's not going to be in the middle of the night or anything uh, like that. But ultimately, is it going to be tomorrow? Well, it's Holocaust Memorial Day. There's a convention in British politics that announcements and major uh, decisions aren't put out into the public on that day. Also, it's only a one-line whip in Parliament, so many MPs might not be there. So it could drag into Friday. Parliament is sitting on Friday. It could drag into next week. In the end, Nigel, what I'm trying to say is, uh, no, we don't know, we don't. frankly, when this report is going to be released. Yeah. No, I, I think sometimes saying we don't know is a good, honest answer. Darren, is it your feeling that the longer this drags out, the better it is for Boris Johnson's survival within the Parliamentary Conservative Party? Yeah, I think in some ways what the Prime Minister needs to hold on to at this stage is time. He just needs time. And let's be frank about this. This is something that has been a bit of a winning formula for Boris Johnson. He just hopes something will turn up. Uh, that means that the, the wind will change, that suddenly uh, things start looking uh, better for him. And frankly, that has helped, even in this crisis, that the lulls of time in some ways have cast doubt, allowed him to call MPs to try and convince them mm -hmm. uh, that he should remain in office. Uh, also, clearly, uh, lots of MPs now saying we should be focusing on what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. But in the end, I think, Nigel, uh, the proof will be in the pudding. And what I mean by that is, it's the content of Sue Graves' report that ultimately will force MPs to make a decision about whether to back him or sack him. It will be at that moment when it's all there in black and white that they will ultimately have to decide what to do. And I think irrespective of whether this drags into next week or the weeks after, which I don't think it will, it's when that report gets released and when he stands in the Commons, that will be the moment that his future will be decided. Well, we will have to wait. Darren, thank you very much indeed. Well, joining me now to debate all of this is The Sun's associate editor and, of course, former political editor of The Sun, Trevor Kavanagh. Trevor, I saw today in The Sun your piece, Back the Boss, uh, and then the Tories must honour their election pledges or keers in. Isn't one of the problems here that even before Partygate broke, and, and you know, look, we're all getting bored with endless stories, but they're coming, and Cummings is deeply vindictive, very negative. I don't think he could give a damn what happens to the party, the country. But even before all of this broke, you know, you were saying in your columns that we have a Conservative Prime Minister 
in with an 80-seat majority, fantastic opportunities to fix our borders, to bring in supply-side reforms for small business. And what we've seen is a Tory party putting up taxes and going for a net-zero policy that actually will beggar ordinary people, even before Partygate. Weren't there real problems with the direction that Boris was taking the Tory party in? Yes, and I don't think that David Frost, for instance, left without uh, thinking very, very seriously about these problems, which have been growing. I mean, the, the government, uh, and I, I wrote this, and also I spoke to people in Downing Street about the image of the government wallowing. It seemed to be doing nothing. It had all this advantage. It had its uh, majority. Yeah. It hadn't done anything about free ports or actually about immigration. It's done nothing to send anybody back home who have arrived here illegally. Those are key points, really, I think, for the voters who went for Boris in the first place, plus lots of other things like deregulation, all the things that, in theory, uh, Brexit should have been able to give us. And the benefits of Brexit that have taken place <clears throat> have, in a sense, been almost accidental. Things like Unilever coming across from Holland yeah. and the Royal Dutch Shell and the fact that we've got the euro. This is the city. It's nothing to mm. do with Boris, who is prime minister, who seems to be sitting there. And this is why so much support has disappeared. The, the balloon has... Uh, sort of lost its uh, capacity for supporting him. And uh, people are disappointed. They voted for him for good reasons, and he's not... He's but all of that, all of that analysis, <clears throat> you know, much of which I agree with, but all of that was true before Partygate yes. broke. Much, very much so. And now what we have, and I see this battle, you know, I, I mean, I... I get Conservative MPs sitting where you are, and some defend him and some don't. Uh, we make sure you know, the viewers get both sides of the argument. But I think what everyone's forgetting here is there's a bigger issue out in the country, and it is a question of trust. Is the Prime Minister a man of integrity? Is the Prime Minister a man whose word we believe? Because we can excuse people getting things wrong. We can forgive people holding their hands up when they've made mistakes. What we can't live with, and I think some of this goes back to Blair, in Iraq, the feeling that the PM, the feeling that Blair wasn't honest with us over Iraq, and that's kind of stuck, I think, with our politics for all these years. When you see this testimony, and you may say it's a minor issue, you may say pen farthings, cats and dogs, is a minor issue, but, it, but actually it gets to the heart, I think, of, of, of what the country is trying to make up at the moment in, in terms of its own mind. You know, 25th of August, Zach Goldsmith makes it, his office make it clear, the PM has just authorised the Nowzad staff and animals to be evacuated. When the PM's asked about it, he says it's not true. Is he a man of integrity? Well, I think trust has been blown out of the window altogether in the last few days and weeks, in a way which I think is almost irreparable. And frankly, this latest uh, development, this revelation about Nowzad and these mm. cats and dogs who I understand half had to be put down when they arrived because they're mangy. That is, frankly, possibly one of the worst things about all of the revelations. Okay. Having a cake and a, a drink during lockdown, when you could argue that Downing Street was basically a factory working 12-hour days during a pandemic crisis, you might arguably excuse mm. some of that, mm. although, of course, some in many it. ways, is inexcusable. This, I think, was an outrage when people were clamouring to get out of uh, Kabul Ben Wallace would have commandeered that plane and taken it over and put people in it, not dogs and cats. Is Mrs Johnson a problem? It seems to be the case. I mean, look, I've only heard what other people are telling me, obviously, on this, but nearly all the questions sort of lead back to Carrie, the green issues, the dogs and the cats and so on. 
um, uh, animal sentience. All of these things which um, I think aren't really the top of the agenda for most people who voted for Boris Johnson in 2019. So, yes, I think that that is a problem. And I think that he, in the process of doing the things that seem to be uh, new completely for Boris Johnson, he's ignoring the things that got him the job. Absolutely. I mean, Trevor, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting talking to you. You agree with me that trust has been broken between him and the voters, that he's not really pursuing conservative policies, he's not really honouring what those Brexit voters particularly, many of whom came to the Conservative Party for the first time in their lives, wanted. I do get the argument you're making about the lack of a suitable alternative, but is he really the right man to continue? And if he does stay on, if he does stay on, isn't it almost inevitable that Starmer wins the next election? I'm not sure that he will be able to stay on, even if he gets through the Grey report in the next few days and weeks. I think that the May elections are going to be the key Castro. factor. And I think that's been the case almost ever since uh, North Shropshire, which I think actually is the real point at which things started to go almost unforgivably wrong for the Tory party, within the Tory party. I'm talking about yeah. the question of the leadership. That was a catastrophe which sort of came and went, but it didn't go really. It was an issue of judgment which reflected badly on Boris and it left uh, one of the safest, it lost them one of the safest seats in the country. So that, I think, will be looked back upon as the point at which things changed as far as Boris's chances of survival were concerned. And I think that if he gets through the, to the point of the May elections, he'll be lucky. And if he gets past the May elections without losing an enormous number of seats. Or yes, and we've got Wandsworth, Westminster in London, some of these big flagships. Yep. And, and, and I, yes, I think, I think sort of Tory abstentionism could be their really big problem. Can't, I mean, it's a long way off, but that's how it seems to me at the moment. Trevor, nobody could see Mrs Thatcher coming in 1975. Nobody could see John Major coming through the middle in 1990. I certainly couldn't see Theresa May coming through in 2016. So the idea in the press that if Boris goes at some point this year that it's either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, I just don't believe that. I think history shows us that big surprises can happen in Conservative leadership elections. Do you see any dark horses out there that you think could somehow bring back to Conservatism that kind of populist edge that it needs? Well, one of the problems with the candidates who will be running is that some of them are Remainers. I don't think that the Conservative Party can afford to have a Remainer as Prime Minister right now, especially when you hear from people like Heseltine and mm. Adonis saying mm. that this, this is their opportunity to reverse Brexit. He would be under tremendous, whoever it was, say it was Jeremy Hunt, mm. wouldn't have a chance of holding the party together. This is when Boris, if and when Boris goes, there will be a seller's remorse and a huge black hole left behind because there will be a scramble to fill that uh, uh, seat. And the, the, the talent, unfortunately, for the Brexit side rests in large degree among candidates who aren't very well known, but mm. who are quite vocal and uh, very articulate. Yeah, well, look, let's give Boris credit for one thing. We did get Brexit, albeit imperfect. The vaccine rollout proved that not being in the European Union was the right thing to do. And he was the man. Mm. He was the man for that, for that last half of 2019. How long is he going to last, Trevor? <laughs> I think the big problem is that lack of trust that you just mentioned. Yeah. I think once you've lost trust, like an avalanche, uh, it's almost impossible to recover. So it's a matter, I think, of 
time and it's not very much time. Trevor Kavanagh, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. Coming up in a moment, a major supermarket is urging its customers to carry on wearing masks. I'll ask, how many years are we going to have to put up with all of this? Well, another tough day with Boris Johnson, not the Sue Gray report, but the revelation from Lord Zach Goldsmith's office that he'd authorised absolutely the Nowzad animal charity to get that flight out of Kabul airport at a time when many people who wanted to board planes couldn't do so. And, and he's just outright denied it, not just once, but twice. I'm asking whether he is a man of integrity. Kim says he is an animal lover. He just couldn't leave them. It wouldn't have been right. I don't think that was my question, really. One viewer says, the public didn't willingly vote for a man of integrity. They voted for a total rascal they knew, and they don't care about the parties or the dogs. I think to some extent that's true. I think we did know that he is a bit of a rascal in lots of different ways, but we do at least expect him, don't we, to tell us the truth? Jason says, I think the integrity of those surrounding him is more in question. With friends like them, who needs enemies? Harry says, no, he is a serial liar, but I voted for him knowing that was the case. Ian on Twitter says, do you really need to ask that question? We all know his relationship with honesty is tenuous at best, and yet people gave him a stonking majority. Well, they did. But, you know, there was a reason for that. We had been through three and a half years of absolute agony ever since that Brexit vote, and we wanted something decisive done about it. Now, as you know, the government are lifting, at least in England, many of the regulations, including the need to wear face masks. Hooray, is what I say. And yet, big retailers like Sainsbury's, John Lewis and Waitrose will continue to ask their customers in England to wear masks in their shops when Plan B rules end tomorrow morning. Well... I just think this is outrageous. I mean, how many more years are we going to go on living like this? Have I got this wrong? Medically, have I got this wrong? Well, joining me to discuss this is Dr. David Nichols from Doctors Association UK, who is a consultant neurologist. So, David, tell me, I mean, I felt tomorrow was a liberation. We could go to the shops and we didn't need to wear those horrid face masks and we could sort of almost feel life had gone back to normal. But you think Sainsbury's are right, do you? Uh, I do, and that's because I'm afraid this was a political decision. It certainly wasn't based on any public health evidence. There's lots of evidence from other countries. If you look at what happens in Asia, South Korea, and they've avoided a lot of the lockdown side of things in South Korea, is by good use of face masks. And I would say, wear the right size mask. Um, and you know, I'm afraid we are, our health policy is driven by more about keeping the right wing of the Tory party happy. Well, I mean, there is a question of liberty. There is a question of choice. I mean, what interests me about this face mask debate, you know, is early on in the pandemic, you know, Van Tam was saying there is no evidence that the general wearing a face mask for the public um, will affect the spread of the disease. So to begin with, we were told by the experts who were getting up and doing those daily five o'clock briefings, the experts told us face masks made no difference. And now we're hearing from experts that they do. I mean, who's right here? but that's because the knowledge is clear that COVID is airborne and there's a lot of things we could be doing. And that's the problem we're seeing now with cases, particularly 
uh, higher in younger people is we fail to deal with ventilation in schools. Um, I think it's been a mistake uh, and uh, that we haven't thought about masks in schools. And also think about the quality of masks uh, is important. So, I mean, Doctors Association have campaigned since the beginning that um, healthcare professions have decent sized PP, and it's only just this month they've changed the policy for these FFP3 masks. Um, and, you know, if I was out and about in the supermarket, I would be wearing an FFP2 mask. It is hardly a human rights violation to wear a mask when you're doing a weekly shop. But yet, that's, you know, if you look at the Desmond Swains of this world, uh, they to say they're, you know, genetically immune from wearing a mask, which is just ridiculous. But David, what if COVID lasts and comes back every winter for the next two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten years? Are we to go on as a society that perhaps for ten years or more has to wear face masks when we go to do the weekly shop? Is that really this- what we're saying? COVID doesn't get bored, okay? You might get bored, but COVID does not, okay? And, uh, you know, we know there's, what, 4 million people um, aren't vaccinated. Um, and actually, this is about doing the right thing as a community. Just tonight, I was actually speaking to a patient of mine I've known for 20 years uh, who has a very severe form of neuropathy, works as a teacher, okay? So she's clinically vulnerable. Uh, when you go out to the shops and wear a mask, you're helping to protect people like her. And actually, I think this should be a case of good manners, actually, that people are wearing a mask. And so, part of the so, problem- really, so really what you're saying is that COVID-19 is going to fundamentally change the way we live for many, many years to come. For the moment, that's not just me saying that. I mean, the World Health Organization were saying this on Sunday. And I think it's really important that broadcasters like yourself are responsible on this. Um, not just with masks. I mean, I've had arguments with presenters where they describe as a muzzle. Uh, and, it, you know, it's, it's really not helpful. And it, it even relates to the vaccine debate as well. I've had similar arguments. I and mean, I've actually reported GB News, not your show, different show, for spreading health misinformation to Ofcom. Uh, David, people David, must have- David, D- David, I don't want to wear a mask. And I, you know, if I go into Waitrose at the weekend, I really don't want to wear a mask. If they insist, I will wear a mask rather than storm out in protest. Um, but look, you know, I make sure that the viewers get both sides of an argument. And I did introduce you by saying that, you know, perhaps medically yep. you would tell me that I was wrong. But I will ask you this question. I will ask you this. The bombardment we're under to get the booster is quite extraordinary. Uh, letters, phone calls, public advertising campaigns. And yet there's still a very large minority have chosen not to have the booster. And here's why. Because they know that having the booster, you can still catch COVID-19 and you can still spread COVID-19. And isn't it perhaps the moment at which we treat those that have chosen not to have the booster or not to have the vaccination with a little bit more respect. And that exactly is why we need to do all of this. It isn't just about vaccine. It isn't just about masks. It's doing all of it. Um, And, you know, I would urge, when you see people like, you know, the Steve James of this world, um, you know, when there's 1.2 million people in the NHS, you will get some cranks, okay? So for someone like that to say there isn't enough science about uh, uh, vaccines, yet at the same time promotes, and I kid you not, vaginal steaming, 
okay? <laughs> for which there is no science. It's too you early really in the evening. Been. It's too early in the evening for all that. <laughs> but David, David, seriously, you're not calling up to 100,000 medical professionals cranks, are you? Well, there's one... No, not at all. And the problem is, is when that gets broadcast, okay, that sort of stuff goes viral on social media. I've done a lot of work with vaccine-hesitant staff, and those kind of debates never come up. What does come up is the kind of debate about natural immunity, that kind of argument. And mm -hmm. that's actually pretty easy to deal with, is that not everyone generates an antibody response. Safest way to get immunity is to get vaccinated. Um, so, you know, maybe we should have you, Nigel, leading a campaign to uh, get people vaccinated. David, I look, I respect the right of those who choose not to. And if, and if, and if they're taking risks with their own health, then so be it. There, there are many other personal choices that affect health. But what I don't want, what I don't want, David, is to live in a country uh, where those who choose not to get a medical treatment are discriminated against. Almost a new form of medical apartheid. And that, that's the one thing I feel strongly about. But look, I will always, David, allow you and others to come on the show and make your argument, of course. I'm a Liberal Democrat. I agree. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. Right, well, there you are. Some very, very strong views there from David Nicholl. Now, other interesting things that are going on. Given the rows that have been going on in Westminster, there's one issue that has barely had a mention. And yes, it's something that I've been talking about for the last two years and I've been predicting will get worse and worse. And that is migrants crossing the English Channel in inflatable dinghies and 90% of them, maybe more than that in some cases, being young men. Well, we're off to a start in January. Uh, the number thus far this year is well in excess of 1,300. That's in the month of January so far. And have a look at this trend. You know, 2018, 299 people that we know of illegally crossed the channel. 1,844 in 2019, 8,461 in 2020, 28,401 in 2021. And that number of 1,308, which is as of the close of play last night, not tonight, that number is six times the number that crossed the English Channel in the whole of January last year. Just to give you some idea of what's going on, and the government, the authorities, know what's happening. Because there isn't just now a processing centre at Dover, as there's, as there's been all the way through this. There's now one at Lyd Airport. There's also one at Manston too. So there are now three processing centres for those crossing the channel in Kent. And I think the Home Office know that this year it is going to be 50, 60, 70,000 who knows? It's an issue that isn't going to go away. And whether Boris Johnson stays as prime minister or whether somebody else takes over, this in the red wall is one of the really, really big issues. Now, let's have a bit of good news, shall we? My what the Farage moment. We were told by virtually everybody, particularly the big banks and the big corporations, that if we left the European Union, it would be a catastrophe for the city of London. Well, Lord Heseltine and others, if you're watching, try this for size. A report by EY says nearly 90% of major global financial services firms have said they will either seek to set up shop in the United Kingdom or boost their current operations. That is an absolutely overwhelming 
global vote of confidence that London, the UK, is the right place to do financial services business. Not Frankfurt, not Paris. It never, ever was going to be. Now, the big clue. This is interesting. I did an interview at the end of November with Donald Trump. I tried to push him as hard as I could as to whether he'd run again as president of the USA. His response was, well, Nigel, if you love your country, you've got no choice. Well, have a look at Donald Trump playing golf yesterday and see if you can spot the clue. Here's Donald Trump. So he's on the first tee. First on tee. 45th president of the United States. 45th and 47th. There you go. Yes. Uh, I love <laughs> Mr. Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen. So, <laughs> announced as the 45th president of the USA, Trump confidently says that he'll, he'll also be the 47th after the next elections, which take place in 2024. Some more of your responses. Raymond says, if Boris did help in the rescue of those dogs, then I'll be supporting him after all. Well, but that's not the issue. The issue is whether he told the truth. Brenda says, does Boris ever tell the truth? Andrew says, of course he is a man of integrity. Just ask all of his wives. Ooh. Anne says, good for him. One thing he's done right. And one viewer says, no, I don't think Boris Johnson is a man of integrity. However, now is not a good time to lose a prime minister. Coming up on Talking Pints, somebody who is an expert on being leader of the Tory party, Ian Duncan-Smith, Conservative Member of Parliament and, of course, former leader of that party. The GB News Tavern is open. It's Talking Pints. And my guess is that our guest this evening, as a Conservative Member of Parliament, could probably do with a drink. Ian Duncan-Smith, welcome to Talking Pints. Now, (laughs) we've got you here under completely false pretenses because we wanted to grill you about the Sue Gray report, but that isn't (laughs) going to happen. Um, It's interesting, Ian. I mean, you know, before politics, you were a soldier. Your father... An incredibly distinguished Battle of Britain pilot with... I don't know how he sort of managed to wear all the medals that he managed to accumulate. Five gallantry medals he had, yeah. Yeah, five. Five gallantry medals, yeah. Just astonishing. What on earth makes somebody go into the snake pit of politics? Well, funny enough, when I announced out that I... I was in business before. After the army, I went into business. And uh, when I announced out to my father that, uh, that I was thinking of going into politics... Because he's from the generation that got deeply distrustful of politicians because of what happened during the 30s and, <clears throat> and then ended up fighting a war. And he said, my God, he said, I thought I brought you up better than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was right, really, then, wasn't was he? It, really. I think it was always the last comment he probably uttered to me about it, really. But you've been there 30 years. Uh, sorry? You've been 30 years uh, well, uh, 29, 30 years coming up this uh, April the 9th. Yeah, 30 years in the House of Commons. I know. Horrid, isn't it? You've had some big ups. Lots of downs. <laughs> Lots of downs. And, and I, I don't want to be unkind to you, but because I do genuinely think, Ian, that in political terms, you're like a good claret. I think with age, you're getting better and better and better. <laughs> but having said that nice thing, yeah. let's just remind you, perhaps, of a moment that wasn't quite so great. Let's have a look. This is when you were leader of the Conservative Opposition Party. We must destroy this double-dealing, deceitful, 
incompetent, shallow, inefficient, ineffective, corrupt, mendacious, fraudulent, shameful, lying government once and for all. And to those who doubt and those who deliberate, I say this. Don't work for Tony Blair. Get on board or get out of the way, for we have work to do. Mister, I say this. The quiet man is here to stay, and he's turning up the volume. <laughs> that was really cruel of me, wasn't it? No, that's but, right. I didn't mind that. Yeah, <laughs> well, bad, really. there's no such thing as a free drink, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it was a, you had a very difficult time as leader of the party. Blair was... Blair was on cloud nine. There was nothing you could frankly do about it, and he was there for years. Well, and it, and it, it ended in a, you know, it was tough for you. Well, uh, you know, the Conservative Party had come out of a regicide. Well, in the case of Margaret Thatcher, not a regicide. But the reality was that that had divided the party dramatically and led to serious problems. And then, of course, 97 was a disastrous defeat. Mm -hmm. We were down to about 160 MPs. So uh, being leader, I'll be honest with you, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't really quite intended in the sense that we were standing to yeah. try and make a point about where the party should go. Uh, but having been there, I didn't regret any of it. You can't look back and regret it. It was tough. It was tough because, you know, nobody was interested in listening to us. And the press were vicious. press are always vicious because, of course, when you're down, they like to kick you. That's yep. not a problem. I'm used to that. But the reality was that for the party, they just hadn't got their heads around the idea of it would be good to be back in power. So, you know, I used to say my party could have an argument in, a, in an empty room, but the only problem was the empty room won on every single occasion. And that was really a definition of who we were at that stage. And so building back had to start with the party going, waking up one morning and going, actually, do you know what? It's time to stop tearing chunks out of each other and start going forward. And you've just seen the Labour Party for the last few years yep. tearing each other yep. apart. It happens to political parties until they yep. finally discover... And I watched you. Done. I watched you going through all of that. And, as I say, the press were pretty vicious. And yeah. in the end, you stood aside as leader. And I, I kind of thought, well, you know, Duncan Smith, he's been there for a decade. As you say, the army, business, he's going to leave politics. He's going to walk out because he'll be able to make a lot more money in the private sector, uh, live without all that stress. Yep. But you kind of stayed on and, and, and found yourself a new mission, didn't you? Well, why, uh, why did you stay in politics? Well, uh, two things very quickly. One is, during the time that I was leader, I had become very focused on the areas around the UK that had literally broken down. So communities where it didn't matter who was in power, mm. nothing ever reached them. <clears throat> Visits to Gallagate and Easter House and parts of Bristol and London, all these places. Uh, I, I realised that actually what we needed to do was try and figure out what had gone wrong and, and learn from it. And then I started to learn that there were lots of small community groups and charities that were solving problems, that if only we could listen to them, we could get that done on the top. So um, after I'd gone, I'd made a pledge to two of these uh, areas to go back and visit them, regardless, because politicians come and go and they mm. never go back again. So I went back and it was And there. kept your promise. Well, I did. I wanted to keep a promise because I felt really badly that politicians always promise stuff and don't deliver. Mm. So I went back and then from that I set up the Centre for Social Justice. We then, now it's a big organisation, but it draws its ideas from the ground level, from charities and community groups. So we did modern day slavery. That's now law, the first mm -hmm. country in the world to do that. But huge changes. Universal credit came from that, which I had to drive through when and I was in government. It does. And in fact, it 
during COVID, it proved itself completely because, number one, you didn't have queues in job centres because they could do it online. And secondly, they were able to target and get to every single family. So in that respect, you know, nothing is absolutely perfect, but it has worked remarkably well, even so much that the Labour Party now say that they will keep it uh, and develop it. So, you know, getting that through will have helped a lots of people during COVID save their lives in many respects. I'm not taking credit for that. I just simply say that yeah. was the right thing to do. But doing that came out of listening to what people said, which is we need a much better balanced system. And I'm pleased that, that the Chancellor has decided to treat it like a tax and then lower the tax. After all, why do we tax the poorest the most when it comes to I've their never benefits? Understood it. Far better no. to encourage them back into work by taxing them less. Yeah. Good conservative principle. So he did that during the last budget, and I was pleased about that. So these were sort of your wilderness years, in a sense, going around Easter House and all the rest of it. Yeah, so, well, I, I mean, actually, somebody said to me, why did you pick politics? And everyone talks about politics as a career. Mm. And I always argue it's not a career. Because if you want a career, go and be a banker or a lawyer or something or run a business because you can pick and choose, you can go from one company to the next and change what you do. You can't do that in politics. By and large, if you come in with a party that spends all of its time in opposition, you'll come in and go out again and you'll not see any government authority. Isn't the point, Ian, that you know, people like you, people like me, you know, we get into politics, we've got backgrounds and other things. We get into politics because we've got strong passions, strong beliefs. But there's a heck of a lot of the Oxbridge set. <laughs> you know, who, who've never done a proper job in their lives yeah. of any kind at all. It's, you know, age 22, it's working for a think tank, it's in Parliament by the late 20s. Isn't there too much of that in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party too? Yeah, the, it got like that, actually, fun enough. It, it wasn't like that before. It started to drift in that direction probably in the 80s, really, more than anything else. But, you know, post-war, lots of people with medals on their chests. Mm. When I came in, there were very few soldiers, ex-soldiers, in Parliament. Now it's different because of Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm. Um, it's fantastic. There are lots and lots of ex-servicemen, and it's changed the debate on the service. Interesting. It's added potency to it. So it's really important. But I take the view politics has to be a vocation because if you came in wanting furtherance and government posts, you're going to be nothing but disappointed. So you need to recognise that you're here because you want to change things. If you don't want to do that, really want to think again yeah. about being in this game. It's, it's, you know, you know, it's a rough old trade. Oh, it can if be. If you can't put up with it, then something has to be else that's there. Yeah, no, it's, no it's, it, it can be absolutely brutal. <clears throat> but you sort of come back, don't you? You come back into senior positions, you come back into cabinet, and then Brexit comes along. And I remember... Back at the Maastricht Rebellions, I think I'm right in saying you were the only one of the 92 intake that joined that final Maastricht Rebellion. So the Europe issue had meant a lot to you right from the very beginning. Yeah, I didn't really think about it before I came into Parliament, and then I was confronted with the Maastricht Treaty. Yes. Um, I blotted my copy before I even got elected by signing a letter saying, basically, don't sign it, John Major, which uh, <laughs> I think I'm surprised, actually, they stuck with me in the next election. It would have been far better for them if they hadn't. But the fact... So from there on in, I just came to the conclusion very rapidly that I just didn't think everything my father stood for and all the things that I believed in. I just felt that if we did Maastricht, I said at the time that Europe will leave the United Kingdom because Maastricht is moving in a direction that nobody ever voted for. We voted to join a market, to get access to it. We didn't join a political union that would in itself almost replicate a country. So I said, the moment you sign that, we're on courses away from each other. May not happen in my lifetime, I felt, but it will happen. In fact, it happened in 2016. And I think we will be better off for it. I know people argue, oh, we shouldn't have done... No, the truth is, 
we are big enough to be able to negotiate our way through the world and at the same time get on and be friends and cooperate with our allies in Europe. And that's yes, how I the mean, relationship should be. Monsieur now, Macron's a bit <laughs> difficult at times, but then... Well, you know, uh, Seskovic uh, perhaps needs to rethink his <laughs> protocol. We shouldn't have a uh, foreign government uh, have it rules in the United Kingdom, full stop. We must get rid of it. Trevor Kavanagh made the point earlier that some of the good things that are happening are just happening. You know, it isn't happening because of anything government's doing. And I talked before the break about the fact that 90% of global financial services firms are saying London is the place in Europe. And, and you know, if they haven't got investments here, they're going to have investments here. So there is great opportunity. I also thought the AUKUS deal really, really mattered. You know, us getting together. Yeah. With, but one of the things, Ian, that you've really, and I know that you, you know, the referendum, and it meant a hell of a lot to you, and, and you were very active, and you, and you came out of it with great credit. Yep. China, explain to me, help me. How can it be that we discover just a few weeks ago that there's a sort of quite high-ranking Chinese spy in the middle of Westminster? I haven't heard a word since. Well, I'm sanctioned, as you know, by the Chinese I government, know, no. amongst <laughs> others, and my colleague, uh, and Tim Lawton, Nuzgani, and various others uh, in the Lords as well. Um, and the truth is that uh, China, I felt we've had the wrong relationship with China. Uh, under the George Osborne time, we went for this golden decade. Yeah, yeah. And I was very worried when I watched that, genuinely worried that we were heading to a closer set of ties with a dictatorial government. And one of the things that was said to me at the time, oh, don't worry, because um, at the end of it all, uh, the free markets will change the Chinese system and they'll eventually embrace all the liberalism and democracy yeah. that we have. And I just said, no, I don't think that's the case. Now what we've seen is President Xi has taken it in the opposite direction. So this is a very dictatorial and brutal regime. It's committing, no question, genocide on the Uyghur. It's pretty much done the same with the Tibetans. It's cracked down on Christians. It's taken over the South China Seas, threatening Taiwan, trashed the Hong Kong agreement with yep. us. And it's arresting people <clears throat> literally all over the world. So um, what, in the UK, we've been warning for some time now, we have to be tougher on the idea of where China is. They've been in our nuclear industry. Our universities are almost completely now conditioned to Chinese money, which is really worrying. And lots and lots of Chinese postgrad students are getting involved in British defence contracts. What happened to us? When did we stop worrying Ian, about you're this passionate regime? about this, and I've spoken to Bob Seeley on this programme and others, but the truth of, truth of it is, so much of the British establishment seem to be completely relaxed about this. It's changing. Are, we, are the establishments selling out to China? It's changing. I think one by one, people are beginning to realise, actually, we gambled that China would end up in one place. Yep. They haven't. They've gone to another, which is to double down on, on really tough, uh, brutal regime politics. You know, as I say, genocide, brutality, can slave labour. Can we make ourselves less dependent economically yes, on China? Yes, we have to. And this is the key to it. China is dependent on us as much as we are dependent on them. In a sense, it's our money that's flowing to China. Here's the irony. This is what happens when you don't worry about a form of government that you have in China. China doesn't tell the world it has a strange new virus. Whether it was in the laboratory or not, I'm not even arguing that. For ages, for nearly two months, they don't tell yep. the WHO. What happens? It spreads all over the world. Millions die as a result of this. Now I find that when it comes to testing and PPE, all our imports have gone through the roof because we're buying all of this stuff from China now. I know, I know, I know. So I know. here's the ridiculous irony. <laughs> Many millions have died because of their brutal failure to tell what the world what happened. 
Meanwhile, now we're having to go to them to buy our stuff. We have to move it's off crazy. to other countries like India and others, and here in the UK, lots of manufacture now in yeah. the UK should be here in the UK. We need to make sure that we get those costs down, but, but there's lots of reasons why added value could come here. We need to reinvest in the UK. Is China a bigger threat than Putin? Well, I call them the axis of evil now, which, of course, Reagan used originally. We now have... Originally, Russia dominated China in world politics. It's gone around the other way. What's happening is China's watching this Ukraine saga to see how we react. We've seen Germany go weak and wobbly on us because of their dependence on gas. Yes. The UK, to be fair, is leading on this. But the key question is here, they watch. If, if we don't settle this, China will see Taiwan as the next step. And this is our problem. You know, yep. they are together on this. Then if you add in uh, Belarusia, you then start to look at what happens in Iran. When Iran sees the same, you're getting this axis. Yeah. History is repeating itself. We're still seeing genocide now. And, and I think today and this week, we are commemorating the Holocaust. Mm. Did we learn nothing from the Second World War? It's a very good question. Ian, finally, how long is Boris going to last? Well, look, you know, I supported Boris, and uh, I'm going to wait for the report. Support Ed? Yeah, well, I supported him in, yeah. you know, when I was running his campaign. Um, he has uh, capabilities which most politicians don't. You know, he can excite an audience, mm. he can sell a message in a way that I haven't seen since Reagan, really. You know, this, this, as a political salesman, he is, he is literally supreme. Now, all of this stuff should never have happened. There's, not, there's no... <clears throat> even he's admitted and questioned and said, no, this should never have happened. We should, they should have not lost and this whole idea that we were all in this together. If signs on, should have been on the doors saying, when you finish work, go home, mm. don't stay around. So, yes, all of that. But I think unless there's some particular serious point where you can demonstrate that there was clear knowledge about what was going on and it was encouraged, I like to think that, honestly, we need to draw breath for a second and ask ourselves a single question. If we start down that road of ending another prime minister, what are we ending it for? Now, the question really has to be, do we think that lessons could be learned? Do we think that these things can change? Uh, and that's going to well, be the judgment. And that right now we keep that open. Do we think Boris Johnson can change? We well, it's, <laughs> it's only feasible for us to make sure that we get the thing. Okay. The key is delivery. Come on. We voted for Brexit because we knew yeah. once delivered we could get yeah. huge change, I agree. regulations down, I agree. money flowing in. And I think we can do that. But we need to deliver that. And those are the big things. And we can sort out Ukraine because right. if we don't... Well, this is going to run and run. Ian Duncan-Smith, thank you for okay. joining us on Talking Pints. Not that long left, but Lord Zach Goldsmith has tweeted, I did not authorise and do not support anything that would have put animals' lives ahead of people's. Well, you better speak to somebody in his office then pretty quickly. Had he not? Right, it's Barrage the Farage. We can run through a few. Let's have a go. Robert asks, what needs to be done to raise the standards of honesty and integrity in Parliament? Come on, Ian, what needs to be done? Well, the honesty is you're meant to be honest in Parliament, and that's how it works. And when you don't, that's a breach. You either apologise yep. or you get out. So it's very simple, isn't it? If anybody has lied at the dispatch box, they will have to go. Rob asks, how long will British armed forces last against Russian armed forces? It's so good that Duncan Smith stayed. Yeah. In, in, 20, in 20 seconds, Ian. Well, uh, we're not going to have armed forces in Ukraine. No, but what we have to do is make it clear to the Russians that if you step across that line, 
the consequences will be enormous, Great. economic and military. Yeah. Anthony asks, which is worse and how will they be ranked by future historians? Watergate, Irangate, Cakegate. Don't worry, Cakegate is very low down on the list, but there is a big question about trust and it's as simple as that. I'll be back with you tomorrow. In a moment, it's going to be Mark Stein. First, though, let's have a look at the all-important weather.